Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the truth behind the words that we just sang. What a foretaste of our deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Father, that truth that Christ's resurrection is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of our own, that Christ is the first fruits from among the dead, and that we will follow where he leads. Lord, that is from the passage we're looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians. And I just ask that as we sing, so now as we look at your words, you would stir our hearts with hope, resurrection hope in the risen Christ. Give us ears to hear your word. I pray that you would give my mouth clarity as I speak in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning, as I just prayed, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, continuing our journey through these verses. 1 Corinthians 15. And this morning, we're going to be in verses 20 to 28. Now, I just want to remind you of where we've been so far in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been telling the Christians that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the Christian gospel. And if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. Now what has been happening is that some Christians in Corinth, maybe some teachers that have come in, we don't know all the details, but there are those in Corinth who are saying dead people don't rise. God doesn't raise dead people. And what Paul, we saw last week, said, that's a really big problem. If God doesn't raise dead people, then God didn't raise Jesus. And if God didn't raise Jesus, then you're still lost in your sins. Then we've been lying to you. Then your hope is pitiful. If you only hope in Christ for this life. Christianity is a joke and they are all the butt of that joke. If Christ hasn't been raised. There's no good news in a Christianity that has no resurrection. So that's Paul's main point. And now he's going to elaborate on that more in chapter 15 verses 20 to 28. In these passages, he's basically going to say, we have a gospel that's good news because it fixes the bad news. Jesus fixes what Adam, the first human, broke. Our gospel, the good news that we preach and that Paul preached, is big enough to reverse the tragedy of Genesis 3. So that's where we're going. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read these verses for us. Paul writes, but Christ, starting at verse 20, has been indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then. When he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. That's in quotation marks in your Bible because he's quoting from the Psalms. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for, let me quote the Bible to you, he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. All right, so what I want to do before I give you what I got on your back of your bulletins as the main idea and the points for the message, like you're used to, right? What I want to do is kind of talk through these verses again and just show you how these verses hold together. Basically, in verse 20, Paul says, Christ has been raised, and he uses the word first fruits, which we'll talk about in a second. It just means Jesus was raised before anybody else. First. And then everything else he says in these verses unpacks that, clarifies that, supports that. Okay? So look at this. Christ has been raised first among, among the dead. Then verse 21, 4. That's a supporting word, explaining. Since a man brought death, he says, a man's got to beat death. If a man brings death into the world, then a human man's got to beat death. And then he clarifies this. For, more specifically, who is that man? Adam. Adam made everybody die. And who's the man that's going to beat death? Oh, let me explain. Christ. Christ will make all people alive. Then he clarifies that in verse 23. He says, but Jesus is going to make everybody alive, but dead bodies aren't going to rise until Jesus comes again. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jesus' coming. Verse 24. After Christ comes and raises the dead, then the end will come when he hands the kingdom over to the Father. Verse 24 continues and says, Jesus will do that and bring the end and hand the kingdom over to the Father after defeating every rebel power, including death. That's in verses 25 to 26. For, Paul says, let me support that. Psalm 8, Psalm 110, they teach that. They teach that everything in creation has to go back under the feet of Adam, the last Adam. And then Paul clarifies that in verses 27 to 28. He says, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. that doesn't mean that the Father himself is going to be under the feet of the Messiah. Okay, God the Father is still the leader of the Godhead, and the Son will hand the kingdom over to the Father after the last enemy is defeated. So you see how everything's kind of, he says one thing, Jesus has been raised first, and everything else that follows is kind of like unpacking that, supporting that, clarifying that, and developing the thought. So here's the main idea. This is one of those main ideas that I always try to give you like a main idea summary of the thing that's on the back of your bulletin. It's one of those ones that I tried to tweak it and make it more simple. It's like a Hollywood. That's a run-on sentence. Yeah. Okay. It's not one of my best main ideas. I'll, I'll freely admit that. But I'm trying to summarize everything that's going on. Here's Paul's main idea. Because, of, because Adam's failure to rule the world for God, 
put the powers of evil and death in charge. Christ must defeat both the evil powers and death to bring the kingdom back under the rule of God the Father. So, I'll say that again. Because Adam's failure to rule the world for God put the powers of evil and death in charge of the world, Christ must defeat both the evil powers and death to bring the kingdom back under the rule of God the Father. There's four parts to this morning's journey through these verses. So, first, we're going to see how Adam's defeat brings death to all. Then we'll talk about how Adam's defeat in Genesis 3 puts evil powers in charge of God's world. What does that mean? Third, we'll see that Christ's victory brings resurrection life to all. And fourth, we'll see that Christ's victory reestablishes God's rule over all creation and dethrones the evil powers. So, we'll jump into point one. Adam's defeat brings death to all. Most of you are probably somewhat familiar with this story. We've told it many times here, but we'll tell it again. It's central to the Bible's message. In the very beginning of the Bible's story, the first human God made, a man named Adam, a man whose name means mankind. And his wife, Eve, whose name means life, human life. They're representatives created by God. They're placed by God in the Garden of Eden to serve the Lord there and to rule over all creation on God's behalf. So the language used in Genesis and reflecting back on this story as well clearly shows Adam and Eve were a king and a queen. Set there to rule as God's images, images of the God of heaven, earthly images created by God to rule God's world, to represent his character and to take care of the world on his behalf. God's aim in Genesis 1 and 2 is to partner with these humans in ruling over this massive realm that he creates in Genesis 1, a realm that we call the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning of the Bible story, you have a human couple ruling creation for God. And the space that they ruled over was a kingdom, God's kingdom. But it was also Adam's kingdom. He had been entrusted with it. Genesis 1.28 says this, God blessed them, this early couple, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, created to rep represent him on earth and to rule on his behalf. As the story goes, God gives Adam one command. There is a tree in the midst of the garden of Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Normally we think about knowing good from evil as a good thing, right? Uh, if Adam is going to be a good and wise king, um, you hope a king knows the difference between right and wrong, right? Sometimes we wonder about our politicians. Do they know the difference between right and wrong? Well, here's this king in the garden, and I hope that he knows good from evil. Why then does God not let them eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why is this forbidden? 
God says on the day that they eat it, they will die. Well, it seems from this one command that God, as the story develops, we see that God wants Adam and Eve to learn good and evil by listening to him and trusting him and learning wisdom from him instead of trying to acquire it their own way by grasping for it and taking from the tree. This tree is a tree of testing. How will this king rule? Will he rule by obey, obedience to God, or will he try to take a shortcut and grasp for this knowledge another way? Adam and Eve did not listen to God. They rebelled against him, and they ate the fruit. And as a result, they had to leave this garden and they were driven away from the second important tree in the garden, the tree of life. The tree of life was a tree that God has had infused with his own life-giving power. Cut off from this tree and from God himself, humans will always die. Our bodies decay like everything else in creation. And so, while Adam and Eve did not physically die the very day that they sinned, Moses, who wrote the story down for us, wants us to understand that the day that they were driven from Eden, cut off from this tree of life, this was the day that they entered death, cut off from the life-giving presence of God, and from eternal life. And eventually their bodies did die physically. Because Adam and Eve were the first humans, the, because they represented all humanity, all humans are now born outside the garden, cut off from this tree of life and from God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. Do you see that? He says, since death came through a man. And again, he says, for in Adam all die. In other words, if you are genetically connected to Adam, which we all are as humans, then you will die. Every human who has ever lived has died and will die. But there's something else that happened when Adam rebelled against God. He was not acting alone, and Eve was not acting alone either. He and Eve were actually listening to someone else when they reached out for the fruit that gave them the wisdom God had forbidden. They were listening to a spiritual being in rebellion against God, a spiritual being that the Bible says more and more about as the pages of Scripture unfold. Genesis 3 doesn't say a whole lot about this spiritual being in rebellion against God. It calls him a snake, a serpent. Later, scriptures call him a dragon. This is no ordinary serpent. It is a talking, speaking dragon. And Genesis 3 describes him as the craftiest of the beasts that the Lord God has made. The word crafty there, we talked about this before, is it's a word used most often for wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, over and over again, it's wisdom. But the reason the translators say it's crafty is because this is kind of a twisted wisdom. It's being used, you know, treacherous people can be pretty wise in, in bad ways, right? This is, a, this is a wicked wise man. He's trying to get them to rebel against God. He's trying to murder them. He's trying to get them killed. 
by turning against their creator. So he's the craftiest of the beasts, this dragon. Earlier in Genesis, we were told Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over the beasts and other animals in creation that God had made. But here you see Adam and Eve, these rulers, listening to a created being that is not God. A being, a beast that they were supposed to rule over. And this creature spoke to Eve through lies, convincing her to disobey her creator, trying to help her understand, hey, breaking God's law is going to be great. It's going to give you wisdom. You'll be like God. You'll be like a, literally he says, you'll be like an Elohim, a spiritual being, knowing good from evil. And so, listening to the serpent, Eve ate. Following Eve and obedience to this rebel power in the garden, Adam also ate. And so we come to the second point this morning. Adam's defeat, not only did it bring death, but it put the evil powers, evil powers and rebellion against God, it put them in charge of God's world. Adam functionally in the garden gave Satan, the serpent, and all the evil powers who follow the devil gave him the reins over the created order. In obeying the devil, Adam functionally made him king of the earth. This is essential to the Bible's storyline. It's why Paul can call Satan the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. It's why in the temptation narratives in the Gospels, when the last Adam enters the scene, Jesus, and Satan comes to try to get him to rebel against God, just like he did for the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, Satan offers to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you. How can he do that? Because they were his to give. Those rulers worked for him, ultimately. The idols of the nations were invented by him. The priests of the nations serve him. And he says, all these kingdoms you can be in charge of. Why does the devil have this control? It's because the first king of creation, the rightful king, Adam, the first human being, a mighty ruler, yielded to the authority of the dragon, the craftsman's beasts by following a lie along with his wife. And now we humans, we don't just have Satan to contend with and his demonic host. We also have all the powers and authorities and kingdoms on earth that do not serve the Lord, but are pawns in the hands of rebel powers. All the idolatrous powers of false religion that deceive humans and lead them down paths of rebellion against the Creator and His Christ. All the twisted powers of human governments that abuse humans and lead the world through violence and deceit and pride. All the things that build up the descriptions of Babylon that we read in the Bible. The powers of money and possessions to control and consume humans. All the powers and authorities of earth that don't bow to King Jesus are ultimately under the control of the prince of this world. They work for him. And so when Jesus came, 
His mission was not only to defeat the death that Adam brought into the world, he also had to defeat the devil and all the powers of darkness in heaven and on earth as well. Jesus had to succeed at every place that Adam failed. He had to obey where Adam didn't. And what Jesus did, he did obey. He was faithful. He was obedient. Jesus came to fix everything that Adam broke. This is why a resurrection from the dead is so essential. Because Adam brought death. Jesus had to rise to defeat death. So look at verses 24 to 26. Paul says there that there is a time coming when Christ returns when he will finally have destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For, verse 25, he must reign. Jesus must reign until he... And I think that's God there, a different he, has put all his enemies under his feet. He's quoting from a psalm there. We'll see that in a second. So these dominions, authorities, and powers are all the evil forces in heaven and on earth that ally themselves together against the Lord. And they will be completely overthrown one day. And in Paul's words, the last enemy to be overthrown, to be destroyed, is death. How do you destroy death? Well, you raise the dead. That's how you do it. Christ's victory, that's the third point today, brings resurrection life to all. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul says of Jesus that he is the firstfruits from among those who have fallen asleep, who have died. So think of the idea of firstfruits like this. Um, when I planted cucumber seeds in the garden about two and a half months ago, uh, I planted them in hope of getting cucumbers. And that first cucumber that finally was pickable about maybe, what, three weeks ago, was the first fruits of the harvest. And what that first fruit symbolizes is that unless something bad happens, like, you know, fungus or whatever, more cucumbers are coming. The first fruits means more is coming. The best is yet to come, right? There's, there's future harvest ahead. And this imagery is used by Paul to help us think about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. Dead bodies in this imagery are like seeds planted in the earth, waiting and waiting and waiting. Billions and billions of seeds. You look at over the cemeteries of this world and you see the stones and underneath each stone is a seed, a body that has been planted. One tomb stands open. One fruit has sprung forth and that is the resurrected Lord Jesus. He is the first fruit of a mighty crop that is yet to come. Uh, listen to how Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-24. Right? For, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Those who belong to him will be made alive like him when he comes. When will he come? No one knows. 
day or the hour, but when Jesus returns, the dead will rise. Listen to Jesus' own words talking about this in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John 5, 28 and 29. Jesus is talking about himself in the third person here. And he says, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his, the Son of Man's, voice, verse 29, and come out. That's a mighty claim. These claims like these that got Jesus killed. The time is coming when all who are in their graves, when all those seeds that have been planted will hear my voice and they'll come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Here Jesus is quoting from Daniel 12. And he says, what, that, what you read about, the resurrection in Daniel 12 that you read about, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to punishment. Jesus says, I'm going to do that. My voice will make that happen. The Son of Man from Daniel 7, who rose and reigns, who has all authority, he is me. And I'm going to make that resurrection happen. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. These are sobering words from the Son of God, but hopeful words for those who have had his forgiveness and his judgment declared on them already. You are not guilty because I've paid for your sins. Just as the first Adam brought death, so Christ, the last Adam, will bring life. What? Jesus is not just going to beat death. Death is the last enemy. There are other enemies Jesus will defeat before the final grave is open. He, Jesus, shall reign, says Paul, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. This prediction that all Jesus' enemies will be put under his feet, it comes from both Psalms 110 and Psalm 8. Both huge Psalms. Psalm 2 is also very important. So if you think of the Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, some of the most important Psalms about Jesus in the whole Bible. And Paul reads all those Psalms about Jesus together. And they speak with one voice about Jesus. In Psalm 110, King David of Israel is writing, and he's speaking about the Messiah, this Christ, the coming king, the anointed king, who God said would be born into David's family. God promised that to David. 2 Samuel 7. And this Messiah would rule the world forever on God's behalf. He's going to be another Adam. He's going to reverse what the first Adam did wrong. Because none of David's kids did a very good job ruling the world God's way, did they? If you read the story of David's family, it's just one train wreck after another. Even King David himself. You're left after reading the story of David's family. It's a bit. We need a better Adam. This guy, his whole family just gives us one bad apple after another. Okay? When is God going to send this final Messiah, this final rescuer? And with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Adam, he finally comes. And of this Messiah, David writes, Psalm 110, verses 1 to 2, Yahweh says to my Lord, David actually calls his own son, the becoming Messiah, his great-great-great-grandson, he calls him his Lord here. And he says, here's what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, sit at my right hand 
Messiah, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The psalm continues, verse 2. Yahweh will extend your mighty scepter as a ruler staff from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So according to this psalm, the Messiah will reign until the Father gives him victory. Sit at my right hand, reigning, until you have victory over all your enemies. That's where the Paul gets his word, until, from, in 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign until all his enemies are defeated. He will reign until God does that for him. And according to Paul, the last enemy to be defeated is death itself. Psalm 110 isn't the only psalm, though, that Paul brings up here. In verse 27, he quotes from Psalm 8, verse 6 in his Bible. This psalm, Psalm 8, says that it's a psalm reflecting on the creation of Adam. And it says when God created the world in the beginning of time, he put everything under the rule of this first human, Adam. Here's how Psalm 8, verse 6 says. You make him to rule. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. So Paul says here in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, the one who came to fix what Adam destroyed, would have to defeat all the enemies and evil powers that Adam unleashed on creation. And in defeating them, they would be put again under his feet. He must rule over them. He must sit at Yahweh's right hand and reign until his enemies are defeated. That leads to the fifth and final point. Christ's victory reest fourth point this morning. Christ's victory reestablishes God's rule over creation. Jesus bodily rose from his grave two thousand years ago, almost, and ascended with the clouds to God's heavenly throne room where he received all authority to rule from the Father, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And now, Jesus is reigning from his heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father. Even now, Jesus is reigning as king until, and, and right now, the until of Psalm 110, the until of 1 Corinthians 15 is ongoing. He must reign until all his enemies are defeated. That's going on. Jesus' enemies are being brought in submission to him, one at a time. Even now, every time Satan's power is broken over someone and they turn to the Lord, every time someone who is hostile to God bends the knee to Christ, Jesus' reign is increasing and expanding. One theologian, a guy named Michael Horton, he describes it like this. He says, through his heavenly reign, with the spirit leading the ground war, Jesus Christ roots Satan's kingdom and sets prisoners free. I'll say that again. I like this quote. He says, through his heavenly reign, with the spirit leading the ground war, Jesus Christ uh, roots Satan's kingdom and sets the prisoners free. Free. That's what the whole book of Acts is about in the New Testament. Jesus stealing Satan's kingdom back, right? Setting people free by the preaching of the gospel. This is continuing today. 
It happened, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian, it happened to you when you turned to the Lord. Listen to how Paul talks about it. Romans 5, verse 10. He says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The living, resurrected Jesus died to bring forgiveness and freedom to his enemies so that they were bound before him and he will save them by his life. Satan's doom has been sealed by the empty tomb of Christ and by the ascension of Jesus to reign. Jesus' reign then is expanding until the end of time. People disagree about the details. But one thing is certain. When Jesus returns, the end will come. He will destroy the devil and cast him completely out of the new creation and into the lake of fire. And by his word, he will raise the dead. He will judge the wicked and vindicate all who have trusted in him. And then the end will come when he finally hands the kingdom back over to the Father. The whole restored new creation back to the Lord God. Mission accomplished. Here it is, Father. I fixed what Adam broke. How do we apply this? Here's a few thoughts. When we plant a seed, we plant it in the hope of harvest. Right now, I am waiting for the first fruits of my tomato planting. I literally planted those seeds in April. They grew to be little plants, and now they're sitting in the ground, and they're big plants, and they've got green fruit on, but they still have not given me any first fruit. A couple cherry tomatoes have turned orange, but those don't count. I want one of those big red tomatoes for the burgers I made last night, but there's none. <laughs> That's a little discouraging. Man, they've been green for months. How much longer do I have to wait? As Christians, when we plant somebody in the ground, it's a long wait. Right? Many of us will also be planted and continue to wait. And yet as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus secures our hope because one fruit has ripened. One grave has opened. The king has risen and so shall we. And so when we bury people, or maybe cremate people, whatever is done, regardless when that body is laid to rest, we plant in hope. We sow bodies in hope of resurrection because Jesus has been raised. And for the believer, for the truster in Jesus, resurrection is not a scary thing because the judge is our rescuer, our forgiver, our king. He's our hope. Another application for us as believers is that Jesus Jesus must reign until he has made complete victory over his enemies and regains total control over creation like Adam was supposed to have which means there's not going to be any partial victory in the new creation for Jesus. There's not going to be any 
evil power structures of oppression or violence that we read about in the news constantly, that will not be in the newspaper in the new creation. There will not be any inch of creation left where another human being terrorizes a fellow image bearer. There will be no spiritual power or authority that does not bend the knee to the risen Christ. From one inch of this globe to the other, Jesus will have complete dominion, and the kingdom will completely belong to the Father. There is nothing broken that Jesus won't fix. He will make all things new, right? He will wipe away all tears. The kingdom will be restored under the rightful king.